Hello, podcast listeners. This is Charles Chandler. This week we're up to episode 50. Is management thought undergoing a paradigm shift? Well, it's a repeat of actually an episode we recorded back in June of 2016. It grows out of a couple of articles that Steve Dinning wrote in Forbes where he was trying to describe a radical management, which was his idea uh, of a paradigm shift in management thought. Just a note of uh, correction. I mentioned in that episode uh, an idea I was calling management by effectiveness. Uh, That was in an early stage of writing for my book. Uh, I'm now calling that idea management by positive organizational effectiveness. And you'll be able to see that in the book that's coming out in March. Anyway, enjoy. Welcome to the Age of Organizational Effectiveness. This is a podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Today we're on to episode number 18 in our podcast series, and I'm calling this, Is a Paradigm Shift Underway in Management Thought? And the reason I came up with this episode, I was reading some stuff that, um, Steve Dinning had written in um, Forbes some time ago about uh, paradigm shifts. He was claiming that a paradigm shift was underway and that it was leading from an old model to a new model that he was advocating. But let's go back a little bit and think about paradigm shifts. It was Thomas Kuhn in his 1962 book, The Nature of Scientific Revolutions, that popularized the idea of paradigm shifts in science. One of the examples given there was about the Copernican Revolution. Uh, that was when Copernicus said that, um, uh, you know, the Earth was in fact revolving around the sun, as opposed to what Aristotle had said a thousand years before, and that was that everything was revolving around the Earth. So Copernicus made his pronouncements in 1539, and his his model was better able to explain the kinds of things that were being seen in the heavens, particularly the irregular movement of certain planets uh, like Mars and Venus. But his new way of thinking was frowned upon by the church as being in opposition to church teachings. In 1616, the Catholic Church banned Copernicus's book uh, that uh, kind of explained his findings. Galileo was another guy that looked at the heavens. He had some telescopes and had been watching uh, the planets and the stars for several years. And in 1633, he was convicted of heresy for his view on the heavens. So this whole episode uh, sort of gave up a black eye to the Catholic Church as far as its uh, being opposed to science. It wasn't until 1835 that the church finally removed prohibitions that have that were uh, put in place uh, as a result of the Copernican Revolution. 
So it took uh, basically some 300 years um, from 1539 to 1835 to um, work through this, uh, this paradigm shift. So he went from believing that uh, the heavens revolved around the earth to believing that, uh, in fact, the earth revolved around the sun. Clearly, paradigm shifts take a while to work themselves out. Thomas Kuhn noted that they occur in phases, and the first phase is kind of a pre-paradigm phase where there's no consensus and several incompatible theories and incomplete theories compete with each other in uh, the space, whatever the space might be. In the second phase, a new way of thinking emerges which can solve a number of puzzles within a single mental framework or paradigm. Here we see basically normal science being conducted in this phase and the main ideas are working well. But eventually anomalies appear that cannot be accommodated by the existing paradigm. And this marks the end of the second phase. And in the third phase, anomalies become even more apparent and they fail to be resolved. And new science must emerge um, to take things in a different direction. But anyway, whenever you can, whenever you start talking about a paradigm shift, you can be accused of using the latest buzzwords. In 2012, Steve Denning, who was writing in Forbes, wrote about a paradigm shift that he saw happening in management. And he received uh, a fairly negative reaction from many of his readers. There he had contrasted the traditional management model uh, which was very much based on Frederick's Taylor Taylor's 1911 book on scientific management and the whole Taylorism movement. Uh, first, uh, Taylor first introduced management systems to make employees into fir- first-class men and to improve the efficiency of the firm. Basically, he said that um, in the old days, um, men were the center of attention, but now it must be the system to make men into first-class men, uh, to make the the firms efficient and to avoid the waste that he was seeing around him. So the basic idea, which still lingers with us today from, and we could call that the traditional management system, uh, very much along the lines of scientific management, is that the firm, the firm and its employees, makes money for its owners. And to a large extent, the objective there is to make as much money as possible for the owners. And so managers inside the firm control individuals that do the work, and they provide the systems that the the employees use to become productive. And a bureaucracy is in place that um, administers rules and plans and reports. Uh, Efficiency is one of the prime directives and cost-cutting measures are important and commands come down from the top. So in terms of effectiveness, they're essentially using the goal model, which we've talked about in an earlier podcast, um, and management by objectives. So you're effective to the extent that you achieve your objectives. And um, many of the objectives over over this period were focused on profit and Uh, for public company shareholder value 
uh, these kinds of things. Now, of course, since Taylor's time, we've had other thinkers and a number of other overlays have come into place. And we've seen things like industrial industrial relations and human relations and organizational behavioral theory, human resources development, human resources management, uh, employee relations, all kinds of um, ideas that deal with making employees more productive and organizations more productive internally. But still, it's mostly a model focused on efficiency. And certainly over the years, especially in public companies, particularly in the 80s, uh, when agency theory came into play, and uh, Milton Friedman uh, was prominent in the beginnings of agency theory, and the Reagan administration was, was getting started there. So many public companies uh, incentivized their managers heavily, and they were being uh, encouraged to maximize shareholder value. And the shareholders were... Uh, believed to be proxies for the owners of the firm. So what we saw happening there in that period, and we still see it happening, is that the managers were incentivized and the CEOs and C-suite were incentivized to make the stock price go up, especially using quarterly reporting uh, with a, and a predictable rise in share price each quarter. And so they would use various uh, financial engineering tricks to make that happen. And there's, you know, profit uh, is really a choice, and you can, um, you can report profit uh, by uh, starving uh, investment for one thing, doing some financial uh, tricks to to make things look better than they than they perhaps really are. And so these kinds of techniques tend to rob from the future productivity of the firm, but uh, for a time at least, uh, they'll show improving quarterly performance. So this is the old model, you could say, and Dinning, Dinning in his Forbes article, was arguing that a new paradigm was coming into the fore. Um, it was something he called uh, a radical management, and it, one of the central big ideas was the main purpose of the firm was to delight the customer. Uh, of course, delighting the customer... Uh, even even when um, Denning was writing this in 2012, other authors had been talking about delighting the customer for uh, for some decades. Uh, Tom Peters, uh, Michael Hammer, among others, um, had been talking about this in the 80s, the 90s, and and the early um, part of the new century. This had been around for a while, but what Denning was trying to put together was the idea that there's a whole package of things delighting the customer. Uh, managers taking on a new role where they were not controlling employees anymore, but they were simply empowering self-organizing teams. And then conversations and communications were um, in the form of stories about the organization. So there was a new package of things that was becoming attractive that Denning was saying was uh, producing a paradigm shift. Personally, I don't think the paradigm shift is underway or was underway. Uh, the nature of firms being what they are and business schools being what they are, it's very hard for a new paradigm to make inroads 
in, in a rapid way. I think what we end up with are schools of thought that exist parallel to one another and uh, continue on to test different ideas along the way. And really, firms uh, being what they are, they can adopt whatever management practices they want, firm by firm. So it's not really a question of whether it's a society-wide paradigm shift among all managers. It's, it's simply a question of how many firms uh, have adopted um, some of the new ideas. A lot of the things that um, Dinning was talking about uh, essentially come out of the lean uh, software movement in which uh, self-organizing teams uh, use uh, scrum techniques and meet regularly every couple of weeks uh, to report on their progress. And so they're making uh, sort of sprints in, in short bursts to achieve something and then report back. This technique seems to work well in uh, software development, certainly. Other firms are also trying it in, in a wider setting, and, and some of those have been reported on. Coming back to what we've said in this podcast and other episodes, I think a different package uh, could be advocated, uh, especially if we had uh, agreement on the new way to think about effectiveness and using the outcome-focused model. Um, I think another package um, comes to mind, which involves essentially serving your environment and being rewarded in return, because under the outcome-focused model, the, the goal of every organization is the same, that is to be effective. By serving your environment, you're certainly delighting customers and serving customers, but you're also focusing on non-customers and other opportunities in the environment, uh, su such things as shared value ideas from Michael Porter, um, could come to the fore where you cooperate among organizations and find shared value in the kinds of projects that you bring to the market. <clears throat> Examples there have been, let's say, um, some of the coffee producers uh, going back to the, the producers in the, the developing world to help them improve their productivity and their cultivation techniques, there productivity can be increased a few hundred percent when you look at a shared value model. And uh, you get a much um, more steady, uh, steadier supply of coffee uh, to the international market, to the supply chain that way. Ideas about shared value and serving your environment are certainly uh, being talked about. Another part of this new package that I think we could talk about is that um, the self-organizing self team idea is still there. Managers would empower self-organizing teams around current and potential offerings because in the outcome-focused model, effectiveness occurs at the level of the offerings, the products and services, the product, projects and programs. And so um, when you have self-organizing teams around those, uh, able to dynamically uh, make decisions on their own and um, perhaps using some of the scrum techniques and the lean ideas uh, just in time, producing uh, things in short bursts and then reporting back. 
Another component of this is uh, for the teams to be setting watchtowers over the environment to look for incipient behaviors that signal change uh, because essentially you're in the uh, business of changing behavior. When you see an incipient behavior in the environment, uh, it really represents either an opportunity or a need that can be served uh, by the organization in new products and services. Uh, So it's important to be aware of the the new trends in the environment, and no matter what scale they are occurring at, it might be very small scale, those can be scaled up if, in fact, uh, they look promising. Uh, Another part of the package is being able to guarantee the benefit exchanges that were promised, uh, because when a customer is looking at the offerings that are available from the organization, there are implied benefit exchanges that are going through his or her mind about how by paying money, he's getting in in return some economic benefits or some social benefits or psychological benefits. It's important after that exchange takes place and, and and the flow of benefits starts occurring, uh, especially the economic benefits that that the organization follow up on these and to be sure that that they're actually happening. In other words, to go out and actually talk with customers and and watch how they're using the product uh, to be sure over time that uh, they're getting the value they were expecting. The other thing is that the firm needs to guarantee values like honesty, transparency, openness. Because even drug cartels can be effective, but it's only organizations that are that have high values uh, and and maintain those values that uh, can be said to truly serve their environment. And then the last part, uh, kind of closing the loop here, uh, narrative stories about how customers are interacting with the products and services. Communication needs to take the form of of customer stories. In this whole outline here, we're looking not not at organizations as bureaucratic systems anymore, but as complex evolving systems. Uh, In other words, um, the individuals that are working in them are assumed to have a mind of their own, of their own agenda, and it's important that the organization try to create an environment that captures their imagination and that puts their innovative spirit to work and to want to stay so that they want to stay and continue with the firm uh, over extended periods of time. So what I'm calling this and this whole package really is management by effectiveness. Even though it uses the outcome focused model, I want to put a name on it that is a little bit easier to understand So I think management by effectiveness uh, kind of captures this period there. And the effectiveness, of course, uh, refers to uh, the uptake, adoption, and use, as we've talked in other episodes, of the products and services in the marketplace. So I won't go into things we've covered in other episodes, but I just wanted to take a look at whether or not there is, in fact, a management paradigm Uh, shift underway. Uh, I think our assessment here at this point is that no, there's not one generally, but 
firms are free to adopt new things and try them out. And that's really all that matters. You can have a paradigm operating inside a firm and that's all you require. So that's about all we have for today. Join us again next week when we'll explore more stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Goodbye for now.